Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 22, the end of the chapter. We have just come off of studying Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10 in the previous audio, and in that section of scripture, the author described the earthly tabernacle, the golden altar of incense, the table of showbread, the seven-pronged lampstand and all that, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place. He was trying to give us a picture of what it's like in the heavenly tabernacle, which is coming, a more perfect tabernacle. I'm saying it's the heavenly tabernacle. Actually, that's a little bit controverted, but I'm going to assume that for right now. So that's what the introduction to this chapter was about. Now, in this section of chapter, I originally decided to call it Jesus' sacrificial blood is better than the blood of sacrificial animals, which, of course, is true. But upon further consideration, I decided to say that the new covenant is a blood covenant. That's the proper title of this section. The new covenant is a blood covenant because blood is emphasized over and over and over again in this passage. And of course, this is what drives liberals crazy. They can't believe that we would Christians would be so enamored of such an archaic and primitive doctrine as blood sacrifice. Well, it's everywhere in the book of Hebrews, and it's especially in this section. So if you're going to be a Christian who follows the book, who believes in the Word, who believes, who looks at the Scripture the way Jesus looked at the Scripture, and you don't want to be a wussy-pussy liberal, well, then you're going to be enamored of the blood sacrifice because it was Jesus' blood that took away your sin. So we start in verse 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. All right, I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible translation here. The Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. Now, later, we can see, we'll see alternate translations say that the good things that are to come in the future, but we'll leave that for right now. Just think about what are the high good things that Jesus as Jesus our high priest gives us? It's mentioned, these good things are mentioned in the next chapter, Hebrews 10, verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of these of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. The good things, the good things of the new covenant, which of course would be justification, sanctification, eventual glorification, the washing of your sins away, the cleansing of yourself, making you holy, giving you confident access into the throne room of God, saving you from sin and death, you know, the normal things of the gospel that we enjoy as Christians. Now, this phrase, the good things that have come, the Holman Christian Study Bible has a note there. It says other manuscripts read that are to come in the future. So it's either the past or the future. The past running all the way up to the present, option one, or the future, option two. Well, I looked at some English translations and had a battle of the translations. Here are some versions that have good things that have come already in the past up to the present. The ESV, the NIV, the Contemporary English Version, the New Literal Translation, Holman Christian Study Bible, that's about five. However, I also looked at other versions who have the good things coming in the future, good things to come in the future. New American Standard Bible, the King James Version, the Lexham English Bible, the American Standard Version, the English Revised Version, the New King James James Version, the J.P. Green Literal Translation, and the Young's Literal Translation. Now, the Amplified Bible splits the difference. They compromise. They say the things that have come and are to come. <laughs> they take two different manuscript readings and put them into one translation. I never heard of that procedure before, but I think that's what they did. 
Well, if it's the good things that have come, that means the good things that have come in Jesus and in his church now. Or if it's talking about the good things that are to come, it refers to what's going to happen for believers in heaven. And I really don't think it makes that much difference, to be honest with you. The, the thing to really point out is, is it's good things in the new covenant. Good things that the old covenant doesn't have. So you backsliding apost- about to be apostate Hebrew Christians, why would you want to go back to Judaism? In verse 11, the author says, In the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. The greater tabernacle, well, the earthly tabernacle was only 10 by 30 cubits. A cubit's about 18 inches probably. That's pretty small. I mean, you know, you could throw a baseball from one end to the other, no problem. Compare that to heaven. Assuming the new tabernacle is talking about heaven here, which I think it is. Big difference. Well, you could say it's greater in size, but it also could be greater in effect, greater in the benefits provided to us. So it's not really sure. I'm not really sure what the author meant here, but it's obviously the new tabernacle is a lot bigger and greater than the old tabernacle. The new tabernacle is said to be more perfect. That means more complete. Now, what is this new tabernacle that's more perfect, more complete, and greater? Let me give you three options. One, a Jesus' earthly body. Now, I thought this was off the wall when I first read it. Adam Clark says it could be. I'm not sure he affirms this, but he at least mentions it. He says that the new tabernacle could be Jesus' earthly body, which is miraculously conceived with no natural generation. So let's read it. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, Jesus' body. So the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. These good things are greater and they're more perfect and they are in Jesus, the more perfect tabernacle, because Jesus is a place where God the Father dwells. Well, that's not impossible. I don't think that's what it is, but it's not impossible. The greater and more perfect perfect tabernacle could be the church. The things that have come, assuming that you translate, you take the translation that the good things have already come in the past and they move on up to the present, and that means they could be in the more perfect tabernacle, the church. Or, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says, the more perfect things Excuse me, the more perfect tabernacle is heaven. And that's the way I take it, because it's just easier. Especially when the next verse is talking about heaven. Verse 12, which we'll get to in a minute, the context to me just makes it sound like it means heaven. Jesus enters the most holy place once for all in verse 12. Well, does that sound like heaven to me? When Jesus rose from the dead, carrying his blood with him, so to speak. Let's look at Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Again, that sounds like Jesus going into his new tabernacle in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus passed through heaven like the high priest went through the holy place. High priest went into the holy of holies. Jesus passed through heaven and went into the presence of the Father. The analogy is pretty tight. And as I said, the context, verse 12, is talking about heaven. It's not talking about Jesus' body or the church. So we're going to go with heaven is the more perfect tabernacle. It is said to be not made by hands, human hands. That's referring to the fact that the earthly mosaic tabernacle was built with human hands. But in heaven, of course, there are no human hands making the tabernacle in heaven. We go to verse 12, Hebrews 9. He entered the most holy place, that's Jesus, entered the most holy place, that's the holy of holies, the 10 by 10 by 10 cubit, that was in the dark, had the Ark of the Covenant. He entered the most holy place once for all, except that's the earthly type. He's, we're talking now about the heavenly reality, the antitype. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, the most holy place here is not the holy of holies in the tabernacle. It's in heaven itself, as Adam Clark said. He entered it once for all. That means once for all time, as opposed to once a year, as, as the Levitical high priest did, once a year. 
the ironic high priest once a year. Jesus did it forever. Sat down. It's over. No, don't have to do it again because his sacrifice was perfect. Not by the blood of goats and cows, by his own blood. That, once again, shows that his sacrifice is superior. He offered his own blood. A high priest of the ironic order only offers animals' blood, which is inferior to humans, and it's not his own blood. Now, the fact that Jesus sat down once for all and didn't have to offer any more sacrifices, this sort of cuts against the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual sacrifice of the Mass. Every time you go and have Mass, you... Jesus sheds his blood for you because the blood is actually turn the wine actually turns into blood through transubstantiation and that blood is shed for you. Nonsense. That's not true. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood. Now, incidentally, that shows that Jesus was a human because ghosts don't have blood. So if a docetist back in the first century church was trying to say that Jesus was not a body, he was only a ghost. This would be a good verse to knock him down with, his own blood. Ghosts don't have blood. Of course, that's not the main point. The main point is that his blood is superior to the animal's blood that was offered by the Jewish priest. But it is a nice point. Jesus, having entered into this heavenly holy of holies, has obtained eternal redemption. Now notice this redemption, this, this blood price, is eternal which means it doesn't have to be done again. It's only done once, unlike the political high priest. That emphasizes the idea of once for all. It's eternal. It's over with. Once it's done, you're eternally saved. Eternal. By the way, if a Christian has eternal life, as Jesus promised, and let's say that John Doe accepts Christ and he has eternal life, and then he backslides. Ooh. Does that mean he loses his life? Well, if he loses his life, his life wasn't eternal when he got it, was it? Because eternal means forever. The very word eternal seems to me to cut against Arminianism, the Arminian idea that you can lose your salvation. Now, what does redemption mean? The Greek word is lutrosis. Here's a good definition from Steve Ackerson. It means to release on receipt of ransom, to redeem or liberate by payment of a ransom, just like you get your guitar in hock. You borrowed money on your guitar, left the guitar as a pledge, as a security interest with the pawn shop dealer. You've got some money now, you want your guitar back, and you redeem it. You pay the purchase price. It's not really a purchase. Well, it is technically, legally a purchase, but it's a it's a redemption, a redemptive purpose, purchase, if you will. You buy your guitar out of bondage. That's a simple legal definition, and that's what Jesus did with us. We were in bondage to slavery. He paid the blood price and got us out of slavery. Here's some other scriptures illustrating this fundamental point of Christian doctrine. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. But Christ has redeemed us from that means he's bought us out from the curse of the law. So the law no longer has any, can no longer put a curse on us. We also read in Ephesians 1.7 We have redemption in him, in him through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So you see the idea of redemption is everywhere through New Testament theology, through Paul's letters, being bought out of slavery to sin. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Now, we notice the if there, if the blood of goats and bulls, that really should be sense. Technically, in the Greek, it's if, but the NIV gets rid of the condition completely and just says, 
as an indicative with no condition. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkle those who are defiled and gets rid of our sin. Just state, states it point blank. So let's understand that there's no condition here. We know it to be the case, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says, that the blood of goats and bulls, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkle those who are defiled sanctify, and we know that they do because we believe in the Old Testament ritual, you Hebrew Christians, how much more will the blood of the Messiah cleanse us? Now, he mentions blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled. What's he referring to? Well, I think generically he's talking about blood sacrifices of goats and bulls. I won't get into too much detail on that. The ashes of a young cow is probably referring to the purification ritual. It's mentioned in Numbers 19, 16 through 18. I will read that. Anyone in the open field who touches a person who has been killed by the sword or has died or who even touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. For the purification of the unclean person, they are to take some of the ashes of the burnt sin offering, put them in a jar, and add fresh water to them. A person who is clean is to take the hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle the tent, all the furnishings, and the people who were there. He is also to sprinkle the one who touched a bone, a grave, a corpse, or a person who has been killed. So this is the purification from touching a corpse or something associated with a corpse. you got to be clean because of that, because death is the opposite of clean, obviously. It's the opposite of life. And so you take the ashes of the burnt sin offering, you put them in a jar, you add water, and you sprinkle with, you use a hyssop, which is kind of a, a branch or herb that you can dip into the water with the ashes and sprinkle them on people. So now if that Old Testament, those ritual Old Testament cleansing ceremonies can purify the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah? Again, the idea is Jesus' blood is superior to the blood of goats and bulls. Now, the, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, they sanctify. What does that mean? Well, sanctify in general means to make holy. But what does holy mean in the Old Testament as far as the Old Testament ritual? It means it makes you separated from the world and dedicated to God ritually, ceremonially, outwardly, but not in your inner heart, not actually as a matter of your sin. It doesn't do that because it can't take care of your sin. It just takes care of the punishment that might come for unintentional sins the last part of our verse here verse 14 the messiah through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god through the eternal spirit that is most probably the holy spirit as adam clark says but homer christian study bible put capitalizes capitalizes it so those translators thought it meant the holy spirit but it could be as adam clark says it could be jesus's human spirit as he says quote the eternal logos or deity which dwelt in the man jesus christ through the logos he offered himself i don't think so i think it's the holy spirit the holy spirit aiding and 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 attending him as he offered himself on the cross he offered himself another way that jesus is superior this is because bulls and goats don't go to the slaughter voluntarily sheep might but Bulls and goats probably don't, they don't, if they had their brothers, their druthers, they wouldn't be getting up on an altar and getting sliced up. But Jesus voluntarily went. One, one more example of how he's superior. And also he was without blemish. He was sinless. He was the antitype, the substance of Old Testament sacrifices, which were mere types and shadows. Now they were without blemish physically. You couldn't put a crippled lamb or a crippled oxen up on the altar. That was forbidden by the law, but they weren't sinless morally. They weren't perfect morally. They weren't without blemish in a spiritual sense, but Jesus was. He had no sin in him. 
Now, Jesus is said to offer himself without blemish to God in order to cleanse our consciences from dead works. That means your consciousness is burdened with what? I'm trying to do good, and somehow I still feel guilty. And how many of us have been in that boat? I'm sure a lot of Jews were. Actually, there's two options for dead works. First option is, is a, a dead work is a work that is ineffective for salvation. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. All works done in the natural state, which is a state of sin, are dead, for they come not from living faith in and love to the living God. So they're dead works. They can't produce life. But it could be even worse than that. Option number two, dead works are works that produce death when one tries to do them. In other words, option one is works are ineffective to get you saved. Option two is works are not only ineffective, but they're worse than that. They kill you. They make you even deader. Dead works. They produce death in you when you try to do them. As Adam Clark says, they are, quote, acts to which the penalty of death is annexed by the law try to do good and instead you break the law and oops now i'm liable for death so anyway dead works that's that puts some more content in that word we hear that word a lot but dead works they're really bad nothing wrong with works by the way good works are all over the place in the scripture we get saved works are the fruit of our salvation they're not the root of our salvation we are saved by faith apart from works but we are not saved from works i forgot how that little formula goes but anyway you know what i mean we do have to be careful. I was listening to Bruce Gore, one of my favorite Bible teachers on YouTube, and he's, he's Presbyterian, been a Presbyterian all his life, and he says, you know, we Presbyterians have trouble. We talk about we're not saved by works, we're not saved by works, and we forget that the Bible is full of exhortations to good works, and it is. You, you this just is everywhere. So let's have some balance there. Hebrews 9, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All right, we see here the contrast between a new covenant and the first covenant. The new covenant is the covenant established in Jesus' blood as at the Lord's Supper, and also in Hebrews 8. And the first covenant is the Mosaic covenant. The therefore is therefore this reason. Since Jesus went into the Holy of Holies to offer his blood, as we've read in the previous two verses, since he's done that, therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant, which implies that the old covenant is Kaputsky, goodbye, so long, Saranana, so long, farewell. Now, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, we have come across a word that is so difficult to translate, diatheke, in the Greek. Here it's translated covenant. In the next verses, 16 and 17, it's going to be will. Sometimes it's translated covenant, sometimes it's translated will. All right, so let's first of all, in English, distinguish between what a covenant is and a will. A covenant is agreement between two parties. It's the same thing as a contract. Now, these two parties are roughly equal conditions in the English word, the English legal term. But apparently, berit, which was a covenant in the Old Testament, and the diatheke is a translation of that Hebrew word, that word had more of an idea of unequal parties. It was an agreement between two parties, but one party was much more superior than the other party, as in a Susanry treaty. So you got that little nuance thrown in there, a covenant, well, is it between equal parties or is it unequal parties? And then you have another problem. The word is also used, the FAA, to, to refer not to covenants between two parties, but a will, which is between one party, the, the testator, the person that's dying, he drives the will, he dies, and then he distributes his estate to his beneficiaries. Only one party in that situation. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, it's very complicated. I don't really have a total answer to it. I just read an article by that uh, contained quotes from Herman Ritterboss, Louis Berkhoff, and another article by Gerhardus Voss. Those are some heavy hitter theologians. And they went all over the place with it, showing how difficult it was. So I'm just going to take what is the most probable view here, subject to the caveat that I could be wrong. Now, here we have a translation, Holman Christian Study Bible, of Diatheke as covenant. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, most every translation translates Diatheke here as covenant. There is one exception, the old reliable King James Version. They translate it as a testament. He is the mediator of the New Testament. Well... How shall we examine that? Well, I'm going to take the majority view that it's covenant here because of the word mediator. A testator, a testator, excuse me, a testament, a will, does not need a mediator. It needs a testator and an executor maybe, but no mediator. There's no such thing as a mediator when you have a will. So I'm going to assume that most of the English translations are accurate on that. You know, Even the New King James translation, which pretty well follows the Old King James translation, even the New King James translation switches the translation from testament to covenant. So I feel I'm on pretty safe grounds here. There is one little fly in the ointment, however, though, is because in this verse 15 it says those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance, and an inheritance goes with a will. The only thing I can say here is that there is a deal, a covenant, a a super contract, if you will, a treaty between God and His people, and part of that treaty is that there's going to be an inheritance. When Jesus dies. I've got no problem with that. I mean, after all, in law, there's contracts to make a will. I can't remember whether they're valid or not, but people do make contracts to make a will in favor of somebody. And so that idea is is possible here. But I'm going to go with the majority view here that Diatheke is a new covenant. And as a result of that covenant, we are going to get a great inheritance after Jesus' death. Now, let's see why the KGV translated it as testament here in verse 15 instead of covenant like everybody else does. Well, I found one commentator support the King James Version. That's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Let me read you their quote. Quote, before the inheritance by the New Testament, for here the idea of the inheritance, I'm emphasizing that, following as the results of Christ's death being introduced, introduced right there in verse 15, that word inheritance is in there, it requires the Greek to be translated testament, as it was before translated as covenant. So let me go back and read verse 15 again and emphasize that. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So that's why the KGV translators went with testament is because of that word inheritance. That must have overcome the word mediator because a will doesn't have a mediator. But anyway, we're going to go with majority opinion here because the overwhelming majority of English translators translate the word diatheke in Verse 15, as covenant. He is the mediator of a new covenant, not the mediator of a new testament. That's why really our our ver- Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all the way to Revelation ought to be called the new covenant, not the new testament. Because there wasn't an old testament. Really, when was the old will? When, when did that happen? There was an old covenant between God and Moses. That was a covenant. So we should call that the old covenant, right? But we call it the old testament. I don't know why. I don't know how that happened. Let me read you a quote by Adam Clark who opposes the KGV translation of Testament. He takes the majority opinion here. There was no proper reason why our translators should render diatheke by Testament here, when in almost every other case they render it covenant, which is its proper ecclesiastical meaning, as answering to the Hebrew berit, which we see largely explained in Genesis 15.10, which was a covenant with God and Abraham, and in other places of the Pentateuch. 
Now, even though Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown supports the King James translation of Testament in verse 15, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown acknowledge that the Greek word diatheke has other meanings besides testament. This sense, testament of the Greek diatheke, here does not exclude its other secondary senses in the other passages of the New Testament. A, number one, a covenant between two parties. So, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown acknowledge that diatheke can mean covenant. And that's why most translations translate Diatheke in verse 15 has covenant. And two, another secondary sense, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, of that word diatheke is an arrangement or disposition made by God alone in relation to us. I think what he means is a one-sided suzerainty treaty. That's what they're talking about. It's not talking about a testament there, because this is said to be an other secondary sense as opposed to the primary sense of testament. I don't think that testament is the primary sense. I think there's two senses, but I don't know how you can say one's primary over the other. Now, here's a quote from Steve Ackerson, who very firmly says that this word should be translated testament. Both will and covenant are for the same Greek word diatheke, he says, quote, A will is an extreme version of a diatheke. A last will and testament is unilateral. It reflects the will, singular, of only one person. This word diatheke was used commonly throughout the Roman Empire to refer to a person's last will and testament. According to F.F. F. Bruce, now that's a strong argument for testament. It is a legal document representing one person's will. It is not between two people. I think that's a little bit strong there because I've just showed you that the word DFAK can mean, at least according to these hotshot commentators, it can mean a covenant between two people. Not necessarily, but it can mean. It means both. And I think the best answer here is, is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's idea that it includes both meanings and you go to the meaning that reflects the uh, the circumstances at hand, and you go to covenant, if there's a mediator mentioned, you go to testament, will, if there's an inheritance mentioned. Now, this new covenant, or new testament, depending on which way you want, you want to go with that, it eventuates in that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. What promise? Well, John Gill says the promise before the foundation of the world would be made to the elect, which I think is a little too theological for me. I think it might refer to the promise that God made to Abraham, because remember, Abraham was his seed, his offspring was going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, and that includes Gentile Christians, Galatians 3, Romans 4. So that's the promise. We're going to receive an eternal inheritance according to the promise made to Abraham. Because the death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions under the first covenant. Now, again, the idea of death taking place so that there will be an inheritance, that supports the King James translation of inheritance. But the problem with that is there's no mediator in a will and no translation except the KGV translates it as testament, not even the New King James. So we're going to assume that the death here is not referring to a death that's necessary for a will to take place, but it's a death necessary to take place for redemption to take place. Redemption from the transgression under the first covenant. We go to Hebrews 9.16, where a will existed. There's that word diatheke again, except now it's translated as will in the Holman Christian Study Bible and not by covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now, why do the translators almost universally, there's a couple that don't, but most all translations now translate the word, the same word, diatheke, as will. The reason is, is because it says the death of the one who made it must be established in order for a will to go into effect, and that's exactly how wills work. you got a will that nobody's d died yet. The will is just a piece of paper. It means nothing. You've got to take the will to the probate court with a witness or two, I think two witnesses, it used to be, 
and then you sign the probate uh, documents, and the will is said to be legal and probated. So you got to have a death. So here we have will. Most people translate it that way. However, I have found one commentator, namely Adam Clark, and three translations that translated as covenant, despite the fact that it says that there must be a death of the one before the diatheke is established. Well, the problem there is, of course, with a covenant, you don't need to have somebody to die, at least on the surface. And nonetheless, I have found, as I say, one commentator and three translations that translated as covenant. The majority, however, say that it's will because when a, the diatheke is translated as will because when a will exists, you have to have the death of the one who made it. That would be the testator before the will becomes established, before it becomes of legal effect, and that just makes more sense. So I'm going to take the majority view, but I will look at the minority view here. How do they come up with we ought to have covenant? Well, the context is covenant. The previous verse, without a mediate, well, there's a mediator of a new covenant, a new diatheke, uh, diatheke, and so there, if you have a mediator, it must be a covenant. Now, most translations translate verse 15 as covenant. And so if you're going from 50, verse 15 to verse 16, generally going by context, you don't want to switch in midstream. So that's one reason why people might want to translate it as covenant. But again, we got the problem of the, of the death of a testator. The death of a covenant maker is not necessary for a covenant to be established. Well, how do we explain that? Well, Jameson Fawcett Brown says that the Greek should be translated as covenant, minority opinion, because these others who want to translate it that way consider that the death of the sacrificial victim represented in all covenants the death of both parties as unalterably bound to the covenant. In other words, when you make a covenant, you got to kill an animal, and the covenant makers are both identified with that animal. They say, if I break this covenant, may God do to me what happens to those animals. May I be split apart in pieces. And so, therefore, they are dead to any other option except to performing that covenant. So they're kind of metaphorically dead by the death of that animal in the covenant. So when you say when a covenant exists, the death of the one who makes it must be established. The death is established by him identifying with the slain animals in the covenant ceremony. Now, that is a possibility I will grant. I don't think it's very likely. It's just much more easy to say will. However... Here's another argument for arguing that it's covenant. Remember I said the previous verse had diatheke with a mediator, which sounds like covenant? The next verse also is covenant. This is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with, with blood. That's obviously not referring to a will there. It's talking about the Mosaic covenant, which was not a will. It was a covenant. So you got context sandwiched around verse 16 as covenant. And so I can see why some people will be tempted to try to explain verse 16 as a covenant instead of a will. In my humble opinion, the best way to look at this is diatheke has such a wide connotation that it can include both covenant and will. They're both legal transactions. They both involve documents. It's just that one of them has two people, one of them has one people. And so the author went from one to the other to make his point, not worrying about being consistent about what kind of legal transaction was involved. I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of the way I look at it. At any rate, let me just give you the majority opinion. The majority opinion is verse 15 is talking about a covenant. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new diatheke, a new covenant. Verse 16, where a diatheke is this, where a will exists, majority opinion. Verse 17, still continue with, with, continuing with the majority opinion. Verse 17, for a will is valid only when people die. That's will. So 15 is covenant. Verse 16 and 17 as well. In verse 18, that is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. 
The Holman Christian Study Bible follows the majority opinion on those four verses, and I think that's what we ought to go with. That's the majority opinion. That's the one I'm going with. All right, so in verse 16, we have where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. There's got to be a death of the testator. That, of course, would be referring to Jesus. He had to die in order for us to get our inheritance, our spiritual inheritance. Without death, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We couldn't get an inheritance unless Jesus died. Let's look at some scriptures that present us with that elemental fact, foundational fact. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Romans 5.9, much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Ephesians 1.7, continuing with the idea of blood being necessary for us to inherit. There's got to be the death of the testator, the death of Jesus. There has to be bloodshed. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption in him through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. 1 Peter 1.18.19, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Necessary for there to be blood, there has to be the death of the sacrifice in order for us to get saved. First John 1 John 1.7, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So all through the scriptures we have the idea of blood atonement, substitutionary blood atonement. But let's look at what liberal Protestants think about that idea. Here's Harry Emerson Fosdick, famous liberal of the early 20th century, he lived from 1878 to 1969, he said that the substitutionary atonement is a, quote, pre-civilized barbarity. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what the pre-civilized barbarity is. It's liberal Protestants like Harry Emerson Fosdick, blasphemers who trash the word of God and who trash what Jesus did for us on the cross. He wants to substitute for that substitutionary atonement. He wants to replace that with all of his good works, which are the moral equivalent of a dirty used cotex, as I think it's Isaiah puts it. You might have noticed I'm not too happy with liberal Protestants. They shut the door to salvation because we have to have a blood sacrifice for us to inherit the kingdom and forgiveness. Now, all this talk about where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established, the talk of a testament, this was probably to give dignity to Jesus' death. He had to die. You Hebrew Christians who want to run back to Judaism and who want to leave Christianity, you feel embarrassed because your Messiah was a crucified criminal? Look, my friends, he had to die. If he didn't die, you would not be saved because blood had to be shed for the expungement of your crimes and your sins. Hebrews 9.17 for a will is valid only when people die. Now, here we go. we got the same translation problem. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never enforced while the one who made it is living. Most translations have it will here because of the context of the verse. A will doesn't, is not enforced while someone lives. The testator lives. The will is absolute of no force. It's a piece of paper. That's true today. Most of the translations, therefore, have it as will. However, I found Young's literal had it as covenant. Hebrews 9.17, For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast, since it is no force at all when the covenant victim liveth. In other words, the sacrificial animal. And that's a literal translation. So that matches Adam Clark's idea that will that it shouldn't be will anywhere. It should be covenant all the way through. But we're going to take the majority opinion and say that's will. 
Verse 18, Hebrews 9, this, that is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. There's the Atheke again. Now that covenant office refers to the old Mosaic covenant, so you can't refer that to a testament. Now the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. We're going to talk about that in detail in just a little bit, so I'll hold off. Note that there's a contrast again between the old covenant and a new testament or a new covenant. The old, first being the Mosaic covenant, the law covenant. Based on law that condemns cannot make you holy, the new covenant based on Jesus's or based on promise, fulfillment of promise, based on Jesus that has the power to forgive us of our sins. The first covenant was inaugurated with blood. This is the famous confirmation of the covenant with the twelve tribes of Israel in Exodus twenty four, verses four through eight. We read this. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in the basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, We will do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So we see after the sacrifice, Moses sprinkled blood on the people. He sprinkled blood on the book. He sprinkled blood on the altar. Actually, it doesn't say he sprinkled blood on the book in, in Exodus, but we read in Hebrews chapter 9 that he did do that. So you see, it's a blood covenant. The old covenant was a blood covenant. The new covenant is a blood covenant. Based on blood, without blood, there is not the forgiveness of sins. So liberals, do you want to... Start talking about blood religion as primitive and, and we're too sophisticated for that. For that Nuts to you. That's, that contradicts the clear words of the New Testament. Hebrews 9.19, For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of cows and goats along with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself on all the people. Now this is a little bit interesting because the book of Hebrews adds some stuff that's not in Exodus. Exodus 24, that passage I just read, we see that Moses sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings. doesn't say what kind of burnt offerings. And sacrificed bulls as peace offerings, fellowship offerings to the Lord. But there's no mention of goats. But Hebrews 9 mentions goats, the blood of goats. mentions the blood of cows and goats. The cows would be the oxen, the bulls. But the goats is not mentioned. And there's an option as to why it was understood in Exodus 24 that goats were used for burnt offerings according to Gil. Because Hebrews 19 says... Excuse me, Exodus 24 says that there were bulls sacrificed for peace offerings and there were burnt offerings sacrificed. doesn't say what kind of burnt offerings. Well, usually it was goats for burnt offerings. So Gil says that's reasonable to assume that there was a goat there used for burnt offerings. That's not a problem. Now, the water, the scarlet wool, and hyssop that is used in this inauguration of the Old Blood Covenant, that's mentioned in Hebrews 9, but it's not mentioned in Exodus 24. So here's some options as to why the author of Hebrews adds the detail. Well, perhaps it's because the sprinkling of blood and water, scarlet wool and hyssop was used at other places. And so the author assumes it was used here. Or it could be just Jewish tradition. The rabbis had traditions that were in addition to Moses. And maybe it was Jewish tradition the author of the book of Hebrews is quoting from. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The fact that it's scripture, we can assume that it happened that when Moses did this ceremony with the 12 tribes of Israel, he used water, scarlet wool, and hyssop. Now, the reason they mixed water with blood is to make the blood thin so it would not coagulate and, and thicken up so you couldn't sprinkle it anymore. It also expanded the amount of liquid that could be used for a libation 
for a sprinkling. Some people speculated that there was a cedar stick. The hyssop, the herb, was wrapped around that stick using scarlet, it's using wool bands to hold the hyssop to the stick. And then when the stick and the hyssop were stuck into the water, the bloody water, the water would be soaked up into the wool and turn the wool red. And that's why it was called scarlet wool. Because think about it, you you never see red sheep, do you? They're usually white or black. This is probably white wool that turned red after after it soaked up the the bloody water. Now this idea of hyssop and wool is used is mainly uh, notable in the purification re- ceremony for the cleansing of lepers in Leviticus 14:6 and 7. He is to take the live bird together with the cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop, and dip them all into the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh fresh water. He will then sprinkle the blood seven times on the one who is to be cleansed from the skin disease. That's the leprosy. He is to pronounce him clean and release the live bird over the open countryside. It was also used, the hyssop and the bloody water was used in the cleansing of a house that it had mold or something bad and got into the, into the masonry. So, all of this was probably done by Moses at the inauguration ceremony in Exodus 24, even though all of it is not mentioned in Exodus 24. Now, Hebrews says that Moses sprinkled the scroll and the people. Now, what was the purpose of that? That's to identify all the people, put them under the same blood. The scroll was the covenant, the law, the word of God. The people had to be redeemed by blood. And so by putting those two together, it put the people under the covenant and redeemed by the blood of the Lord. Now, there's no mention in Exodus 24 of the sprinkling of the book. And some people say, well... It ought to be the same way in Hebrews 24. We translate it like this. He took the book and sprinkled all the people. In other words, we don't distribute the adjectives sprinkled on the book. We just put it on. We just attribute it to people, and then the book is without the adjective. But Gill says that sounds forced and unnatural. I think so. So we're going to assume that he sprinkled both the book and the people, even though Hebrews 24 doesn't mention the sprinkling of the book. I, I, I say you just take Exodus 24 and Hebrews 9 and put them together and get all the details. That's the easiest way to do this. Now, some people say that the author of Hebrews just got the what what Moses did through divine revelation rather than through Jewish tradition. Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that it's true because it's the inspired word of God. So Moses sprinkled both the book and the people with blood. Again, emphasize this before we get lost in the details here. He's emphasizing the main point is that the old covenant was a blood covenant, just like the new covenant is a blood covenant, except the blood is better. The precious blood of Jesus is more precious than gold or silver rather than a bull or a goat's blood. Let me give you some more cogitations on why the book was sprinkled with blood. Here's John Gill. To show that the law was imperfect and needed to be ceremonially cleansed. I don't know if that's true. It's an interesting idea. Or it could be the book, the Old Covenant could be sprinkled to show that the law requires the blood of men if it is disobeyed. That sounds more likely to me. Why were the people sprinkled with blood? To show typically that the people of God are redeemed by the blood of Christ. I've already mentioned that. And I think that's what that does mean. You're going to be saved. You've got to have some blood on you. You've got to be under the blood, as they used to say in the countryside. And I like the idea of sprinkling on the book shows that the law requires the blood of men if it's disobeyed. I think that's pretty good symbolism there. Not that the law needed to be ceremonially ceremonially cleansed, as Gill says. I think Gill has got the best imagination of anybody ever saw, but half the stuff he comes up with are off the wall. Now, how was this sprinkling done by Moses to the people? 
Well, there was, you know, scadzillions of them out there. He couldn't have sprinkled them all, so he could have sprinkled the blood on the people nearest to, to him as representative of all the rest. He could have had the 70 elders out there in front and sprinkled them. That would have been possible, the 70 elders representing the rest. Or he could have just sprinkled the blood on the 12 memorial pillars that were in front of the 12 tribes. However he did it, doesn't matter. He sprinkled them. Again, the main idea is we got a blood covenant and Jesus' blood is better. Hebrews 9.20, saying, well, I guess I'm in the middle of a verse here, so let's go back to verse 19. For whenever command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people, he dot 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 he took the blood of cows and goats along with the water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. So Moses, when he sprinkled that blood, he identified it as blood of the Deatheke, blood of the old covenant. This is again the quote from Exodus 24:8. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Here's some New Testament idea, other New Testament ideas where blood establishes the new covenant. Matthew 26:28. For this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. I think that's in the communion. Adam Clark says of this verse, this shows that Jesus' shed blood is fulfilling the blood that established the old covenant. The old covenant was established by blood. The new covenant is established by blood. Luke 22:20. 20. This is the communion. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. No death. You don't have death. You don't have a covenant. And you also don't have a will either if you want to go that route. Hebrews 9, 21. 21 in the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. This is again referring to Moses at the confirmation ceremony of the law, Exodus 24. This, of course, well, actually it wasn't at that confirmation ceremony because the tabernacle hadn't been built yet. It took them a while. But I think it took them, what, 18 months? I forgot. No, it took less than that. I, I forgot how long it took them. It didn't take them long. But he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. Here's a scripture that reports that. Exodus 40, verse 9. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it along with all its furnishings so that it will be holy. Now, that verse says anointing oil was sprinkled all over the tabernacle. Nothing is said about blood, however. So, once again, Hebrews adds another detail. Here are some options. This is why there's no mention of blood in Exodus, as it is mentioned in Hebrews 9.21. Option number one, tradition has it that blood was sprinkled. Josephus actually mentioned it, as Gil and Clark point out, and so the author of Hebrews, being familiar with that tradition, just reported it. Or it could be the author of Hebrews was directly inspired, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest. We go to verse 22 of Hebrews 9, and we'll finish up the chapter, well, not the chapter, but our section, our, this audio. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Almost everything is purified with blood. That shows that there were some things in the Old Testament ritual that were purified otherwise, and here's some examples. For example, some things were purified by fire. John Gill gives these examples. Numbers 31:23. everything that can withstand fire, you are to pass through fire, and it will be clean. Some things were purified by water. Numbers 31:23. everything that can withstand fire, you are to pass through fire, and it will be clean. It must still be purified with the purification water. In other words, if you've got a fire, something cleansed by fire, that's stage one. Stage two is you've got to run it through water and get it clean. Anything that cannot withstand fire pass through water. And so some things don't have a stage one because the fire burned it up. <laughs> so then you wash it with water. 
Exodus 19.10, And the Lord told Moses, Go to the temple, go to the people, and consecrate them today, and tomorrow they must wash their clothes. Leviticus 15.5, Anyone who touches his bed is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will, will remain unclean until evening. Water. Leviticus 16.26, The man who released the goat for Azazel, that's the scapegoat, is to wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Afterward, he may re-enter the camp. Leviticus 16.28, the one who burns them, that's the hide and the flesh and the waist of the scapegoat, the one who burns those things is to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may re-enter the camp. So fire cleanse some things, water cleanse some things, and actually the, the ashes of the red heifer, I don't think I read that earlier, but that was the purification ceremony where you put ashes of the red heifer, red heifer in water and sprinkled on things that would purify things. But mostly it was blood. Blood, 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 blood everywhere. Blood purifies. Blood cleanses. That's why we have a blood religion contrary to Harry Emerson Fosdick. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 22, talking about Jesus' blood is better than the blood of animals. In chapter 9, Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28, which will cover the, the entire rest of the chapter, we will talk about Jesus carrying his blood into the heavenly holy of holies as the heavenly high priest. And we'll see why all this emphasis on blood was done in this, in this current audio. In the bulk of chapter 9, we talked about blood, 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 blood. Now Jesus is going to carry that blood up into heaven for the purpose of forgiving us for our sins. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> 